Welcome to Ed Influencers, a podcast from ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. I'm Joseph South, ISTE's Chief Learning Officer, and I'm excited to bring you interviews with members of the EdTech community who are not just innovating in education, but are influencing nonprofits, education policy, and business, and are shaping how students learn. Today, I'm talking with Elliot Maisie, who leads the Maisie Center which focuses on how organizations can better support learning in the workforce. Elliot also has the Learning Consortium, a coalition of 230 global organizations cooperating on the evolution of learning strategies. Collectively, Elliot has reached over 2 million learners. It's also interesting to note that he's a successful Broadway producer. Well, thank you for joining us today, Elliot. It's an honor to be here, Joseph. So... How would you describe your job and your work? You, I would say that you have a position that is a little bit undefinable. Well, I have uh, dimensions to it, be the easiest way. My primary focus is on learning. Uh, a little bit different silo or a little bit different vector than many of the folks in your organization. I focus primarily on learning that happens, both formal, informal, structured, um, self-directed learning at the workplace for the literally hundreds of millions of people who work in organizations, uh, whether they are in a first job at McDonald's, Walmart, Google, or whether they are developing leadership skills for, um, you know, a, a capstone role in their career. And our focus is to bring together about 250 of the biggest corporations in the United States and have them collaborate on what works best for learning, which is a parallel universe to what uh, happens in, in your organization with folks in the education world. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we, we think in terms of, you know, educators in classrooms, but in the aggregate with our students, we also have hundreds of millions that we're, that we're trying to reach. And so there is a really interesting parallel between those two worlds. And I think we have to accept that there's, uh, when we often talk about lifelong learning, and I think it's a great phrase, at a functional level, it really is lifelong. Think of all the skills that uh, a human being gets before they get to kindergarten or preschool, from uh, walking, talking, bathroom navigation, social skills, and then Think of all of the ones we pick up outside of our educational world. And then when we leave school, whether it's through graduation or transition or the like, there are going to be a continuous set of learning chapters in somebody's life, both for uh, work and perhaps someday for health or or other uh, dimensions of it. And in some ways, it's all the same. All the issues, all the dimensions of what makes up good learning or what could make learning even more uh, engaging are true no matter which part of that spectrum we're on. So I want to talk to you more about that work, but I'm really curious. Did you ever think that you would be, you know, spending all your time and energy really focused on these issues? I bring together really, um, three passions and I had those passions when I was quite young I'm I'm at the wonderful I call it level 68 uh, my birthday was recently <laughs> but if you talk about a level it gets better as numbers get right get I like that and I figure I'm about halfway through my career now um, but when I was much younger there were three passions 
I was enormously passionate about the magic that happens when you bring people together, whether it be throwing a party of folks or being involved in social activism or theater, which became a bigger part of my life later on. My second element was I was enormously intrigued about what technology could be. And I started off where technology was literally a Morse code, um, you know, shortwave radio clicker. Uh, but later on got very involved in the PC and, and mainframe and computer world. And then the third area, for some reason, I was always attracted to the moment of learning, not necessarily be a teacher, but to really focus in on what happens when a human being needs to, wants to, is triggered to, or desires to be a learner. So it was kind of pulling those three bits together that uh, formed the basis of this. I remember at probably the age of about 22, 23, I said to a friend, I want to become the leading world's expert on a field that doesn't exist yet. In some ways, I followed yeah. some of that pathway of as PCs and, and technology emerged there. And then clearly, more and more of our jobs touched uh, on technology. So that's been the, the random route of that. Now, I know that you've been credited with being the first to use the term e-learning. You know, that term came on early in the, in the PC world, I guess maybe, maybe crossing over in the internet world. I'd actually love for you to, to say where that sort of started. And, and I'm really curious between what you envisioned then when, when you thought about that term and what you see now, did we stay on the path that you thought? Did we go in a good direction, a bad direction? Like where, where are we on that path? We had had a form of technology-mediated learning, and certainly in schools and classrooms, it might have been the slide projector or the film or, in some cases, programmed knowledge. And we had in the mainframe world and in the early days of network PCs uh, what we call computer-based training. But when the Internet kicked in, right around the same time as the O.J. Simpson trial, and I remember I was between roles, I was watching the trial and playing with a, a very early, uh, slow Internet connection. The idea became, could we use technology, most specifically the Internet, to become a multiplier of the learning process? And it was happening with you know, messages becoming email, transactions becoming e-marketing or other elements. And and the, the trigger moment was a meeting in Atlanta with the senior executives of IBM. And they had tried to, if not coin, certainly push the term e-business and the like. Right. And I said, you know what? You guys are doing some emerging, exciting things in teaching online. You ought to grabbed the phrase e-learning. And there was some excitement, and then their brand person said, well, that really isn't ever going to stick. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't want to own it, but I and many people started to use it. To your key point, uh, when I think of e, I think of ease as everywhere, everyone, every time, engaging, evolving, invigorating. And, and you can put all these other elements to that. I believe if we think of e-learning now, we think of the broad spectrum. Right. I can walk around the uh, expo here, and I'm seeing hundreds of ways in which technology is being used to optimize learning that we don't call e-learning. 
My only fear is that in the corporate world, a lot of e-learning has become boring learning. <laughs> uh, you know, where the theory was... Compliance I, learning. Yeah, right. compliance learning. Yeah. So if I can download a, a boring PowerPoint <laughs> into a boring e-learning program and ask a few dumb questions, boom. And I certainly can tick the box of compliance. I think in order for e-learning to be what we, those other E's, it's got to have a level of engagement, challenge, rigor, and it's got to be, I'll give you a funny word, it's got to be elastic. You know, the e, I love applying the E to elastic learning so that it becomes agile with the needs, requirements, and changes of, of the learner. So, you know, why do we do that? Why, why do, why are we so uh, quick to reduce what is, has so much potential down to that, you know, electronic, the, the e-learning. Sadly, even many of my colleagues who would say they are innovators are risk adversive. So I like to sometimes go to a teacher and say, wow, what you're doing is really incredible. Could I come in here? Could I watch, record what you're doing? And we could, in the end, end up with a, a module, kind of like Ted has done, and put that online so millions of people could do that, and they wouldn't need you. <laughs> and I say that to just sort of just prod them a bit. And in many cases, the response is, well, you could, but the magic won't be there. So I actually think what we need to do is to find greater ways of, on one level, taking risks, but also to view that it's not about replacing the role of the teacher. My best image of the teacher is, you know, I come from the Jewish tradition. It's a rabbi. And the rabbi knew how to ask the question. They weren't necessarily the one with the answer. And right. I think a great teacher knows how to ask the question, connect people to assets and resources, hold people accountable, do rigorous assessment, um, and then get out of the way. And getting out of the way is the bit that I'm not sure people are still comfortable with doing. ISTE hosts industry-leading events to help educators rethink the status quo and use technology to drive good practice. Join educators from around the world or right down the street at upcoming ISTE events, including Topical Edverse, the Creative Constructor Lab, or the Digital Leadership Summit. And don't miss the most influential EdTech event of the year, the ISTE Conference and Expo, coming to Philadelphia June 23rd through 26th. Visit ISTE.org events for details. So when you come to your work, you bring your values. Mm -hmm. And I'm always interested in understanding how do your core values inform the work that you do? Obviously, you know, companies have values and they have, a, they have goals and things they're, they're trying to accomplish. But when you think of what, what drives you personally, how does that manifest in your work? The word that is the biggest word for me is curiosity. I'm driven by curiosity. I am fueled by curiosity. And I actually think it's the ultimate connector. I think in any conversation with someone, regardless of what your role is with them, if you get to a moment of curiosity where one or both of you are asking curiosity-driven questions, learning happens. So my values stem around that. My other value stems around the fact that I think learning is a longitudinal multi-cycle process. Teaching can be a single dose, 
I can go to a great lecture, a great class, a great online program, watch a great video. If the goal is learning where I integrate it, I can use it, I can do it, I can transfer it, it's multi-cycle and it's iterative. And so those are my two elements. I want to have it be curiosity-driven, and then I want to make sure that it sticks around as a process long enough for the learner to get to be a master of that concept. Right. So that brings up a really interesting question around metrics. If, if that's your ideal and your values, if you think of curiosity-driven in that multi-cycle approach, it makes me wonder, what, how, how do you measure that? Yeah. In the world of workplace, our biggest challenge is that people want inexpensive, rapid, universe-based, quick assessments. So a survey, uh, a question at the end of an exam. In reality, if the risk level is high, if I'm thinking about certifying the heart surgeon about to operate right. on someone, I don't want to give them a three-item multiple-choice test. I want to watch their practice. I want to observe them. And for that, we need to move the moment of assessment away from the moment of instruction to downstream. Right. We probably, if it's really assessment, if I want to assess the process, not just the individual, I might choose to use a sampling method where I spend much more time and money per learner but go to 3% of the learners. And um, I also believe that that you can't really do great assessment at the end if you don't do enough data analytics around it to say, did they succeed because they were of privilege? Did they succeed because they've had two courses like it already? Did they succeed because they have a boss who gives them the time? It's really interesting, you know, so much... When you think about learning, a lot of times you focus on that moment of learning and that the interaction with the learner and the instructor or the content. But there's so much going on around that interaction that learning analytics can capture. And I sort of think of it as like the hidden superpower yeah. that, that we, we don't really pay attention to. We don't yet do, in my view, a hyper predictive form of assessment built into learning a skill. So let's let's say, for instance, I wanted to teach somebody a skill. They're going to be the floor manager for getting people off a floor in case of a fire. I could give them a course. But if I really laid out the competencies, there are probably about 40 competencies that I want. Uh, some of them are physical, some of them are emotional, some of them are procedural process and the like. In the best of all worlds, I would start with an assessment either by action, 360, or the like, of what that person had. I would use it to be predictive of what could they learn rapidly. If we wired assessment stronger into the curriculum adjustment process, not creation, adjustment process. Now, this is where some traditional instructional designers and teachers get nervous. And I'm not talking about AI creating the curriculum but using a data model to figure out what does this individual at that moment need to get them to knowledge, including lowering the memorization capacity. And I'm not saying that people don't memorize. I think we memorize through requirement and utilization. We have not applied an engineering task around an instructional moment. 
and I wish we could. A lot of that, I think, is coming from places that are doing user experience and IDEO and others right. that we really start to think about the engineering moment of a, of a curriculum design. So it, that really makes me think that to some degree, I wonder how many learners who have capability are being filtered out because we aren't sophisticated enough to recognize and respond to that capability. I think we overstate the complexity of some things. We've often thought of leadership as something that's huge. And a lot of restaurants have figured out we can take somebody who's 17 years old and in 90 days get them to be a leader in on-the-job development models. So we've got to get less sophisticated. I think we have to become more behavioral. I think we also have to realize that we're operating on a base that's already there. So a lot of what they are has been formed by their parents, by their environment, by all the other education that they've had. We don't do a good job of linking what we're teaching them to what they already know. Right. And um, I think it's interesting if, if you're side by side with somebody and they say, hey, you know, Joseph or Elliot, can you help me with that? We do that natively. Right. You put them in a room and it all goes away. It all goes away. And in fact, we have, we hire people for jobs because they're experienced. We get amnesia the day they start. Right. They had that experience. And finally, I think, you know, there, everybody's talking about diversity and there's the wonderful justice part of diversity. But the flip side of diversity is, uh, people do things differently. So I was talking to one corporation was saying some of our best leaders are shy. That's fine. So we just have to think about what's it like to be a shy leader <laughs> versus a bold. I mean, not that shy is bad. It's right. a descriptor of how you are when I hired you. And I don't have magic wand to make you less shy. Right. Well, and it has profound implications for how we design the learning. Because if once you decide, hey, there's more than one path there, yeah. then then how, how do we create learning that Make sure everybody who can follow that path gets gets there. Joseph, I just want to slip one thing in before before we wrap up. Uh, failure. I think failure is really critical. Failure is how we learn. You know, if tomorrow I was going to teach you to play golf, we would start by knowing that many of the balls you hit would go into the water or into the sand. If I were teaching you to fly an Air Force jet, I would take you to a simulator where you would crash. I think, sadly, in the uh, highly protect, protective parent world that we have, that we are inoculating kids from the rigor and the failure that they need. And I think it happens at the workplace level as well. I, I would love to have a way, and I get excited by things like VR and immersive, but let's use it not to make it 360 ooh-ah. Let's use it to get to oh crap. And I actually think when you learn something and you've never had a chance to fail, you probably have a false sense of confidence of your ability to do the test. Absolutely. Get the certification that transforms teaching practice. ISTE Certification for Educators is a competency-based, device-neutral certification for educators who want to use technology to catalyze learning. ISTE Certification helps pre-K to 12 educators redesign learning activities with tech to engage students in real-world learning. And because it's pedagogy-based, ISTE Certification gives you the tools you need to change classroom practice, no matter what tech you're using. Become an ISTE Certified Educator. Learn more at ISTE.org slash certification. 
So let me ask you about learning technology a little bit. You've seen all kinds of technologies come and go. And, you know, we spend a lot of money on that stuff. One, you know, how do we justify our investment in things that are going to become obsolete? And two, what endures for you from, from those experiences? I think the, um, the challenge that we have is that we get sucked into the sexy. I remember when Second Life was there. There will be no more meetings. We'll do that. Or even walking around and looking at people with VR, there's an awful lot of ooh-ah. But then I want to have the next conversation. So how could we use this to teach trigonometry? Now, in order to do that, We've got to not and fall in what we have to not fall in love with the technology, but see it at the word I used at the beginning. It's an optimizer. It optimizes something. And in that case, the interesting thing is less is more. In right. many ways, we shouldn't be trying to build tech learning experiences. We should see ed tech as coming in and shortening, deepening, scaling something, we often over-tech. And if we want to make it scalable, I think that we're going to need to keep it simple. Now, I get excited about ultimately what the smartphone would be. Because I had, I think, I had the 17th Apple iPhone when it first came out. Wow. You know, and it was a nice piece of glass that you could touch, but it didn't do much. There were no apps. There were no, the internet was not on it. But when I look globally now, I see that phone has become a personal curiosity connection transaction device. I worry in a way that our educators are one or two generations ahead of that or behind of it, however you want to frame it up. So I like to look, and I think it's really appropriate, that we ought to look at learning innovations that's happening. I'm going to be going to uh, Africa in um September to do a keynote speech at an e-learning Africa conference in Rwanda. I want to learn how mobile phones are being used in the marketplace in Rwanda for both commerce skill transaction certification. And so I think from a global perspective, this is a great moment to move out of first world only perspective because if we really want to make technology scalable to everyone, we're going to need a non-first world perspective. Right. And, and I think there's not as much recognition as there should be that some of that not first world infrastructure is right here in the United States. Yes. Uh, you know, a large number of our students are disconnected from the internet at home. Yeah. And I think the final piece of this is storytelling. I, I think we are, you know, I'm a Broadway producer in my spare time. And, and what I've learned and the reason I love to produce Broadway is it's about storytelling, and learning is about storytelling, whether we hear it from a peer, a subject matter expert, a teacher, a hero teacher. I think we have to start to look at how the storytelling arc is shifting. So we look at what are the stories on TV, what are the stories on the net, what are the stories on Broadway, on movie, in our churches and synagogues and mosques. And I think storytelling is is a powerful, vibrant vein in the learning world. So if you take storytelling and technology and agility, it's like, wow. Well, and it's really interesting, too, because if you look at our form of storytelling and how it's evolved in our society, it's becoming multidimensional. It's Mm -hmm. becoming many paths 
to the core story. Right. And it, it seems like there might even be a parallel there of what we, what we need to do or would like to do with learning as well. Well, a secret backstory at Hamilton, which is now on tour or going around, they decided to add 220 additional speakers underneath the seats in what's already an amazingly successful show. Why? They gave each of the actors on their costume a geotag. So as as the person playing Alexander Hamilton or Jefferson moves left to right on the stage, the mix of their voice goes left to right. Oh now, why did they do that? They actually found that for younger kids, they're used to a 360 audio experience. And for the older folks in the audience, they needed that. So how do we look at the science of entertainment, right? And then pull that science back into that. Very few educational programs really use the left or right earphone on on audio. But right. How do we how do we start to play with audio engineering to optimize engagement? So back to your uh, failure theme. Has there ever been a time when you've been dead wrong about something? Oh, I've been dead wrong a few times. Um, I was enormously enormously convinced that Second Life was going to take. I was right in that it was intriguing. I was wrong that there was no business model. I also was um, early on convinced too soon that what uh, tablets might be. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was too soon. And so I think there's an interesting element of that, Joseph. When something fails, the word when is an interesting word because it's it might fail not because it's a bad idea but it's too soon too late or not at the right when moment right. so timing is in some way is everything the final piece that uh, i still am intrigued because i think it's a failure is that we've left the internet too techy why anybody in their right mind would have a way to get to a website to type HTTP colon backslash backslash www dot. Like if we did, you are if, so right. If we were going <laughs> to build a movie about how to keep people <laughs> away from knowledge, we would create that stupid In, format. Right. The, Why? At the end of the day, knowledge people defer to techies. And techies ought to work for knowledge people. So Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that's a metaphor for technology in general, right? And it gets back to your idea of simple technology. Yeah. When technology is simple, we feel like it's in our service. Yeah. When it's complex, we feel like we're serving it. Right. And and so if you look at the mobile phone as one example, they just use it at a touch level. And so I think what we need to start to do with all technology is to look at making it really simple, hiding the tech, not, I mean, anybody could get to it, but hiding it so that people's interaction with it is simple. I mean, I'm even curious about people my age and older who sometimes are afraid of tech because the tech layers are in the way, but yet they're the highest users of technology. You give a 75-year-old person email and Gosh, they're blasting yes, out. Yes, they'll to fill up your inbox. Yeah, absolutely. So, to wrap us up, what makes you really optimistic about the future of learning and technology? I get optimistic about that word curiosity. I find myself about three or four times a week, something in my life is broken. Some, you know, device is broken. And I know now that I can probably go online, 
find knowledge, by rarely usually from the person who created the device. Right. Watch something, fix it, and if need be, get help fixing it. That's powerful as it relates to the device. I get excited about using that in a broader sense. How do we deal with bigger issues in our lives? How do we deal with societal issues? How do we deal with other elements? And so I, I am intrigued that curiosity, if we allow it as an overt part of what the learning process is, could lead us to a, a better a better state, a, a better society. Um, you know, we have to go beyond thinking of fake news. To me, there are lots of perspectives on anything. So how does somebody get them, curate them, figure it out? And I get excited that curiosity will allow us a better shot at that. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to the second half of your career. Educators have lots of questions about EdTech. What's hard to find is reliable answers. Your EdTech Questions, the new podcast from ISTE, tackles critical questions at the juncture of EdTech research and classroom practice. If you're looking for reliable PD on critical EdTech topics, your EdTech Questions is for you. Subscribe today. 